First of all, any questions, thoughts, comments on the epistle, the homily, the gospel? Anything? Nothing at all? Still percolating on it? Okay. So, uh, yeah. Yes. Ah, yeah. That, that's a very good question. Yeah, I, I didn't really uh, address that. I just left it more broad. So the interesting thing is that seeking God is doing everything that we do in the church. And I just said doing all those things are like pursuing virtue and, and goodness and righteousness. So... <clears throat> so So here's us. The interesting thing is this could be the Jewish people as well. Here's God. Okay. He gave us, and we can put here law, if we're talking the Jewish people and the Pharisees, or we could say uh, the faith, the practice of the faith. When I say faith, I mean actual the practices. Okay. He gave this to us. Okay. To the, the people of the Old Covenant, the law, to us, He gave our Orthodox Christian faith, practice, whatever you want to call it. Okay? And this is a vehicle for what? For access to God. And the devil does a very, very slight change of hand. Faith. He says, yes, do those things. And it becomes just do those things. So everything that we do in the church always has to constantly be in remembrance. I am seeking communion with God. I am seeking communion with God. But we don't necessarily think that when we're hard at work fasting. Or even, you know, when we're going to services, maybe that's not always on our mind. Or when we're doing charitable acts. Any of the things that we have in the church when I'm going to confession... All of it, I can give you the answer of how we're seeking communion with God through that thing. I can also give you an answer of how there's just that thing, and it's a thing that we do as Orthodox Christians, which is this over here. It's the thing we do. As long as we're doing the thing we do, we're following God's rules and we're good, which is exactly where the Pharisees were. So it's the same fundamental problem, is that it always has to be a vehicle for communion with God. So it's the same things, it's just understanding why we're doing that. Like fasting. How is fasting communion with God? You had a question along yeah. those lines? Well, more of a comment to see the difference. Yeah. Uh, then, so remembering that I am broken mm-hmm. and in need of healing yeah. while I'm going there, that yeah. helps me too, right? To remember it's God. Well, instead of doing it because then I'm a good person. But I'm doing yeah. it because I'm broken. I can't do it without him. Yeah, and, and this is all the, the speakings and writings of our saints, which is, I can do nothing. And then you look at them and it's like, well, you're doing a thousand prostrations at night, you're doing all-night vigils, you're going out and feeding hundreds of people every day. And they say what? I can do nothing. Why? Because 
they're only doing those things for communion with God. And they're completely living in the reality, which is all the things that I am doing, I'm not doing. God is, through me. Do you see? It's a very subtle difference, but a very important difference. So, so back to that question I asked. Why, how does fasting have anything to do with communion with God? You guys can answer. Go ahead. This isn't a rhetorical question. How does fasting have anything to do with communion with God? Yeah. By weakening our body and our will, we're allowing our spirit to be stronger and that's basically communion with God. Uh-huh. By, what was the first part about our body? By weakening our will and our body, we're making our spirit stronger. Exactly. So fasting is that I begin to see what I'm already enslaved to. And then only through fasting do I begin the work of fixing that by God's grace again. So when I'm not fasting, I can have all kinds of delusions about how easy it is for me to not eat certain things. Or I just eat what I feel like and I can choose not to eat that. But then, boom, the fasting period enters as we're just about to enter into. And I realize, wow, actually, I'm totally enslaved to my body. My body says, eat that meat. And I go, oh man, it's like taking all of my will just to not eat that thing. So it's only when I'm fasting that I actually see that. Is that true in me at all times? Of course, it is. So fasting is revelation. Fasting is something that reveals to me who I already am. But I usually look at that and I go, oh, well, you know, why are, you know, I could say, why are there these arbitrary fasting rules? Or, what does it matter if I just eat this thing? And all of that um, verbiage is coming from my passions. It's not even me speaking. But I, I am so ingrained with it that I think it's me speaking. So, so fasting, so when, when we begin that hard work of actually denying those passions, that gives us more ability for communion with God. But we can get so in the trenches with fasting that we quickly forget it has anything to do with communion with God. Quickly it becomes, I just, I'm supposed to do this thing and oh, I don't want to and oh, it's hard and okay, I'll try my best and let's try this recipe and let's do that. All of these different things that are, um, it's just very subtle, like that. So it slides us over here. And so we have to constantly be bringing back, constantly be bringing back, why am I fasting? Because I can't have full communion with God if I am enslaved. Pretty obvious, right? I can't have the freedom to commune with God if I am enslaved. So through the fasting, then I begin to get out of the slavery, and then I have the freedom to pursue God. So I don't know if that uh, Lois begins to get at it. So that's the interesting thing is, you, you look at the, let's say it's not the publican who's a tax collector, he's doing all these rotten things. Let's just say it's the average Joe Schmo in the synagogue. Okay? You have the average Joe Schmo in the synagogue doing the exact same thing, saying, God have mercy on me. And then you have the Pharisee who's saying, oh, I'm the greatest and all of these things, right? And the interesting thing is between those two, they're both doing the exact same thing. Because okay, when we talk about a publican, a tax collector, we say, oh, he's doing all these rotten things as well. But let's just say an average person, okay? They're doing the same thing. But one is seeking communion with God. The other one is doing what he's supposed to so he can say, God, I'm good with you. I got it all figured out. Thanks for giving me the rules. I'm following them, so I know you're going to give me salvation. 
you see? And of course, none of us actually talk exactly like that, but the, the temptation to make the action, and this is, this is where the Protestant Reformation was getting something right. They said there's something about these works that isn't quite right. But what they said is just throw them all out. They said, it's only faith, no works. And so they've been going off in the wrong direction since then. But in fact, what they were talking about is right, which is there's something about the works that's very dangerous because it can be easily detached from God and become its own thing. So, this is always true for all of us, all of the time. That's not adamant enough. (laughs) So, everything that we do in the church, when I get up in the morning and I go to church on Sunday, I'm seeking communion with God. When I get up and I don't want to pray and I pray anyway, I'm seeking communion with God. When I realize, I look at the calendar, it's a fasting day, I want to have communion with God. I'm going to fast. When I see a poor person on the street who looks like they might be half drunk, but they're asking for money, I want communion with God. I'm going to give my money away. It's not for me to decide how that person does things. So many, many opportunities in our life to to keep it within that perspective is I want communion with God. Because why? Because then that's where you can put virtue, you can put righteousness, we can put things that we want even more. We want good things, right? We want uh, truth, right? We want beautiful things, right? And the list goes on and on and on. These are all the things God is giving us. We're not getting for ourselves. And that's again where it gets difficult because in this equation, it's like I do this thing and oh, now I'm a better person. It's like a feedback loop. I'm giving myself righteousness, virtue, goodness because I'm doing these things. That's totally separate from God. And that's why we also have to... This is where the humility comes in as opposed to the pride to say it's all from God. All of these things are from God. There's nothing good in my life that's not from God. We have to be militant about that. Nothing that I do in my life is good. doesn't mean I'm a rotten person because God loves me and He created me. He desires me more than I desire my own self. But I'm not the, I'm not the source of, of good qualities. God is the source of those things. Whether He gave them to me at my birth, or whether He gave them to me because I'm pursuing Him. Either of those ways, that's how I have these things. And anything else you could put here, anything that is of a positive quality is coming from God. Any questions on that? Thoughts? Critiques? Anything? So it's very hard. The good thing is in our Orthodox faith, we have so many tools. So many tools. And I look at the rest of Christendom, and I say, it's sad. I feel bad for them because they don't have the tools that we have. But on the flip side, we can use all those tools to set up our own equation here. We can do that. And it's almost easier to do that because we have all the tools. And it's so hard to pray. And it's so hard to fast. And it's all about my will. And I'm going to force myself to do these things. Like I mentioned in the homily about everything about church becomes spiritual feats. Like we look at Lent and we're like, okay, 
I'm going to do this. I'm going to buckle down, and I'm going to do these things, and maybe I get partway through Lent, and I go, yes, I'm doing it. Right? All of that has to be constantly pushed back to God. So at the beginning, I say, God, help me. I know I can't do anything good, but I know that I desire you, and you've given this thing to me, this Lent, to me, so that I can be with you. And then all along the way, if there's any progress... The, the beautiful thing is with the freedom. If there's any progress, you go, thank you, God. I didn't do it. And if I just mess it up and muck it up all along the way, then I say, look, God, I tried to do it myself. Please help me. Right? And we present God our brokenness. It's very freeing. It's humbling, but it's very freeing. So that's why the humility is at the center of all of this. Like St. Anthemos said, uh, humble-mindedness brings all of the virtues. Humble-mindedness, that everything I'm doing is towards God and God is the one bringing this here, it will cause God to bring more of this. So, Anything? Let's use... Uh, we've got about 20 minutes to do the liturgy. So there are liturgy books over there if you don't have one. And we are on page 26 or 42, depending on which book you have. If your pages are different at the bottom, then you're on page 42. If your pages are the same on the bottom, on both sides, then it's page 26. So we just read the, what's called the, uh, the prayer of the proscomidi, or the, the offertory prayer, the offering prayer. And that's where we ended last time. And just as a, a synopsis of where we've gotten, we just had the great entrance. And after the great entrance, there's the long litany that the deacon says. And that litany, it was all these prayers on page uh, 24, 25, or on page... 38, 30, uh, and 40. So then we get to this prayer. So this prayer, um, I don't think that I really described the prayer much, so I'll describe it a little bit more. It says, O Lord Almighty, who alone are holy. So again, it has this the formula that I've talked about before, which is where we first talk about God's qualities, and then we get to what we're asking. So, O Lord God Almighty, who alone are holy, who accept a sacrifice of praise from those who call upon you with their whole heart. That's something directly off of the, what we talked about today in the, the homily. Who call upon you with their whole heart. How many of us offer our whole heart to God? Receive, so then the request, receive also the entreaty of us sinners and bring it before your holy altar and enable us to bring before you gifts and spiritual sacrifices for our sins and for the, those committed in ignorance by the people. And make us worthy to find grace in your sight that our sacrifice may be acceptable to you and that the good spirit of your grace may dwell in us and in these gifts here set before you and in all your people. So again, that concept of we're asking God to receive it and we're asking Him to make us worthy because we are not worthy. And yet through this, we become worthy because He makes us worthy, not because we've made ourselves worthy. So then after that, the priest says, Peace be to all. 
And the deacon continues, Let us love one another that with one mind we may confess. And the the continuation of that sentence is what are we confessing? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the the Trinity, one in essence and inseparable. So we can only do that if we are of one mind, if we love one another and are of one mind. And if we don't love one another, then we're not of one mind, and then we're not unified as one body in Christ. Um, And then there's a little footnote there. It says, at the bottom, If more than one priest is celebrating, then the choir chants, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my foundation, my refuge, and my deliverer. Um, So that's what you used to hear when we had two priests, but now that we don't, you just hear the the former. Yes? to make it more complex. <laughs> I don't have an answer. Yeah. But there are a number of things that change. Like, for instance, uh, the hymns around the, the small entrance, the very last one is called the Kandakian, and properly that's only sung by the clergy when they form a choir. So there's more than one clergy. So there's a number of things that change when there are more than one clergy. Um, likewise, we should should have always been doing the Trisagian hymn, like we do it when the, the bishop comes, when the metropolitan comes, where um, the choir does it once, then the clergy, then the choir, then the clergy. That should happen every time there's more than one priest. But practically, we don't do that, because we would have been doing that every single Sunday for your last ten years. So, and other things like that as well, like the, the entrance hymn, Come, let us worship and fall down before Christ our God. That's only properly done by the clergy when there's more than one. It should be sung by the choir. So, we might change that back to the, the proper order. So, yeah. So, just as a practical answer, yeah. So, if there are more than one priest celebrating, they all seem to kiss a piece inside the altar. Yeah. And also, these words are actually the words that the priest says at that time. So right after I give the peace, and, we, and the deacon says, Let us love one another, that with one mind we may confess. I bow three times before the altar, which has the gifts on it. And then I say those words at the footnote. I will love you, Lord, my strength. So um, the, the choir is sort of saying what the clergy are saying when there's more than one. So... Okay, then we have the doors, the doors. In wisdom, let us be attentive. So this is again hearkening back to the time at which the catechumen had already been politely asked to leave. So it's just the faithful. But now just to make sure, we're going to shut the doors. Because what is occurring in here is a miracle beyond description. And something that those who are not initiated into the faith can't comprehend. So that's why the church for many centuries, that was the practice. But now also for many centuries, it has not been the practice of the church to have the people leave and to close the doors. But that's where that comes from. How recently was that changed? It's been centuries. Many centuries. 
Yeah, in the monasteries. Well, I would say those parishes have reverted to the earlier practice. It has not been the practice in the church. In the monasteries, I don't think they closed the doors, but the, the, the catechumen are, are they're actually not allowed in the nave in the first place. So there's no, even, no departure of the catechumens. They're already in the narthex from the beginning of the service. So, the, again, monasteries practice a more um, austere faith, and so they're being even more precise to make sure that this is something that is reserved for the faithful. So, yeah. Good questions. So we get to the creed. Interesting that the doors close right before the creed. Because this is the, the definition of our faith. So I have a little uh, vignette for you. How many of you have cried saying the creed? What? <laughs> I didn't, I, that's a wonderful blessing. It's a wonderful blessing. May you all be blessed with that. I was on Mount Athos at uh, Simono Petra for the, the Feast of the Dormition. And there was this talented chanter who just came and chanted with them. Very talented, an older fellow. And he was tasked with reading the creed. And he, he was trying to hold back the tears, but you could tell very clearly that he was moved by this. It was a testament to me because I, I, I might be uh, like the, the many of you where we read this kind of in rote. Anything we repeat a lot, we just kind of say it quickly and get done with it. But if we actually read the creed closely and really savor what it's saying there, it is telling the story of God's great love for us. Right here. Right here. It's telling us God's great love. But we see it as sort of like a, I don't know, like a Pledge of Allegiance kind of thing. Or you just say it because you're supposed to. But if we read through that. So I'll just read through it. I don't expect tears, but I'll, I'll read through it. <laughs> I believe in one God, the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not created, of one essence with the Father through whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried, and he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the creator of life, who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. In one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Amen. Now, I won't spend time going through the creed. That's something, if you really want that, come to the basics of orthodoxy. Um, because uh, time won't allow to go through all the different uh, theological truths that are in this. I wanted to read it more as a, uh, a reflection for us to hear those words through the lens of God's love. Uh, I will say just briefly that the very first word in Greek, pistevo, uh, in English, I believe, the, the two words are one in Greek. Um, 
That is, um, I've mentioned this before, belief and faith, these all come from the same word in Greek. And it always has a continuous action with it. So it's faithfulness. You can't really insert that into the word, I be- the phrase, I believe. But just suffice it to say, it's not simply, this is an intellectual truth that I accept. Like, uh, cars stop when the light is red, or uh, whatever it is. The sky is blue. It's not simply that, but rather it is something that we show our complete fidelity and loyalty to, and our faithfulness to. So this is what we're saying every time that we say this creed, when we say that first phrase. But in English, I believe has become so many different things. I believe that the uh, the Blazers are going to have a good season this year. <laughs> yeah. So when when I say faithfulness, you can't separate action from it. That's why I like to use that word. Because in fact, in the Greek, you can't separate action from it. It's only in our modern English understanding of the word that action is not linked to it. And in fact, I would even say it's so far removed that you would have to additionally say, oh, and I'm also going to do this action. I believe, and also I'm going to do this action. And we've gotten that far as well, again, because of the Protestant Reformation works, right? We're against, you know, Protestants are against all works, so we cannot say that belief has anything to do with any concrete action, which in practicality is ludicrous. You can't be faithful to anything in your life unless action is behind it. How does a man say, I'm faithful to my wife? By not cheating on her ever, right? You can't just say those words and then go do something that's the opposite. Anything. How do I say I'm faithful to the country? Well, because I don't, you know, I vote, I whatever, I this and that. Every other aspect of our life, that's the fact, that action is with it. But in, um, in the things of, of the Christian faith, because of the Protestant Reformation, they're very separated. I would say intentionally even. So. But you can't do that in the Greek. So... Yeah. Did that answer that? Okay. So, five minutes, is that right, Kendall? Yeah, okay. Eight minutes, there we go, good. Okay. So, um, I think I'm going to stop here, because I really don't want to get into I'll explain what is next, and then you can just savor the thought for the next five or six weeks until we talk about the liturgy again. So the next section is called the Holy Anaphora. Accent on the last letter. The Anaphora. So um, what is the bread that we give at the beginning of the service called? At the beginning of the service. Isn't that interesting? Prosphora. I'll say plural. Prosphora is plural or prosphoron. Okay. Um, see a difference? You can do an F or a PH, doesn't matter either way. Um, a-
after the liturgy, that same bread is called andidoron, which means in place of the gifts. Because it was, as they do still this in the monastery, which is you would receive that if you're not receiving communion. So it's called andidoron. But it's the same thing. But before, it's called the prosphora, or prosphoron is singular. And this this is a preposition. And this is a verb. It comes from a verb. And it means the thing that is brought forward. Brought forward. Okay? So this still has the same verb root, which is something that's brought, but we have a different preposition in front. Anyone who doesn't know Greek want to guess at what that preposition means? This one means forward. Roughly. I mean, prepositions have a lot of different uh, definitions or, or uses. Any idea about this? So instead we're bringing it what? We're not bringing it forward. Good guess. Yeah, because you're seeing sort of like the the circular with the ana. Not quite. So this preposition means up. Up. The uh, ascension is called analipsis. The resurrection is called anastasis. So up. So now it is brought up. Okay? So this next section in the, the liturgy, which is the heart of the liturgy... By the end of this section, we will no longer simply have bread and wine, but we will have the body and blood of Christ. Um, And so this is the time when we bring the gifts up to God. The gifts are brought forward by the faithful, and then within the liturgy, we're now going to bring them up to God. And um, just to give you an idea of what we will be experiencing... um, and I'm going to have to say it on both pages. So if you have the, the, the book with the same page numbers on the bottom, that prayer goes from page 28, and it doesn't end until page 34. It's all one prayer. And if you're in the other liturgy book, that prayer does not end until... 56, page 56. So it goes from page 46 to page 56. It's all one long prayer. And by the end of that, we have the body and blood of Christ in front of us. So it requires that we spend some more time in this, and that's why I don't want to start it for a couple minutes and then give you weeks of, of pondering. So instead you just get to ponder it for a number of weeks. How we're bringing these gifts up. Okay. Um, a last thought. I think I've mentioned this when we first started talking about the liturgy. Um, because we're bringing these gifts up, what are we bringing up to God? Really simply speaking, what are we bringing up to God? Bread and wine. Bread and wine. Bread and wine. Okay. And bread and wine is made of what? Wheat. Grapes. Water. Yeast. Okay. All of these are things that we can't make. These are things that are gifts from God. Everything in creation is a gift from God, right? And we take these four things and we don't just give them back to God as our gift, but rather we cultivate them. We don't just give grapes or even just grape juice. We make it into wine and then we bring it back to God. Likewise with the wheat, water, and yeast... And salt, I think, usually is, is employed as well. 
and mix them all together, bake them, and bring it as an offering to God. So this is a really symbolic of our entire spiritual life, which is God gives us a huge thing, let's say our existence, our bodies, and we do a little something with that, and give it back to God, and then he does a huge thing with it again. So we bring him bread and wine, and what does he do? Turns it all the way into the body and blood of Christ. But then it's not done there, because then we consume that. and we, So we're doing something with that. So everything in our spiritual lives is like that. God gives us a huge gift. We, we're expected to do a little something with that. And when we do that little something with it, God multiplies it even more. And then we do a little something more. On and on and on through our whole lives. So may it be blessed. Let's rise for prayer. Christ our God, we pray that our entire life may be an anaphorah, an offering that we offer up to you, that every aspect of our lives may have you permeating it, and that we may dwell in you throughout our lives. Amen.